0: Hey there, I'm Stephanie Domet. I'm an editor at Mindful Magazine and a writer for Mindful.org.
1: And I'm Barry Boyce, editor-in-chief of Mindful Magazine, and I write the regular column, Point of View.
0: And this is Episode 9 of the Point of View Podcast.
1: Historically, I hate jigsaw puzzles. I just look at them and I say, oh my god... puzzle was missing 10 pieces. Mm, ten. 10. 10 entire pieces. I was kind of not happy about this. Mm-hmm. Where was quality control then? Exactly. Day? Go. I got sucked into puzzle world.
0: Well, you really got it bad.
1: Oh yeah, it was, t- <laughs> it was bad.
0: Today, Barry and I are once again settled in his office here at Mindful. Spring is in the air. The birds are very excited lately in their singing. And so you may hear some birdsong, some traffic going by, some office sounds, that squeaky chair, our constant companion in this office. You'll also hear our conversation about bias and awareness. Barry, the idea that the world is not, as you say in your column in Mindful this month, what you see is what you get, feels like it's at the root of a lot of mindfulness practices, that a desire to get beyond or above or maybe it's beneath what we can see drives a lot of us to the cushion. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, I think it's uh, stress or pain that uh, is the... Immediate thing that drives a lot of us to the cushion to meditation. You know, we we feel like, you know, it should be better than this, it shouldn't feel this way. And I think as we get there and start to uncover it a little bit. A, Part of what is causing stress is a disconnect between what we think ought to be going on in our minds and, and what's actually going on in our minds.
0: I remember when my uh, now husband and I were first dating long distance and exchanging emails and he had a quote from a singer songwriter that he loved as his email signature and it was the world ain't what you think it is it's just what it is and for me as like a outcome oriented narrative driven creature that blew my tiny mind (laughs) the idea that it might not be just my perception you know
1: yeah yeah well I mean it's a cliche but it's uh it's like all cliches it's one that's got a lot of truth in it. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm i continually amazed as I have that insight thrown up in my face again. You know, the persistence of our attachment to our version of the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do, I mean, we're making up a version of the world all the time. For you,
0: you know, I assume this is a lesson that you probably learned for the first time decades ago. But you did recently bump up against it again while doing, of all things, a jigsaw puzzle. Tell us a little about that.
1: Yeah, well, as the story goes, I mean, I, I have two granddaughters. As readers of my column will have learned already. Um, I'm very fond of them. They're twins. They're eight years old. Uh, they live in a city far, far away from where my wife and I live now so we spent a month there um, during December and we had them over for sleepovers a lot and we wanted to do some we wanted to have something that would occupy their time my wife thought of a jigsaw puzzle I historically I hate jigsaw puzzles I just look at them and I say oh my god why would anybody want to spend time doing this you know I just look at you know, if you've done it, I mean, like if you have one that has ocean or sky or God forbid ocean and sky <laughs> in all these weird little shapes. And and then when you're done, you all you have is the picture that you could see on the box in the first place. It just looked like why the hell would you do it? But I happen to know that they and my wife Judy knew too that they liked puzzles and she likes puzzles and her family likes puzzles and my kids seem to like puzzles so I was in the minority anyway we got a puzzle and we decided to really go full bore and get a thousand piece puzzle and that's just an inconceivable number of pieces so I watched uh, my job was to set up the area, and I was very good at that. I went out to to, various stores to try to find the right kind of table, and and uh, we set it in a sunroom that had plenty of light, because light's really important, I learned, because your eyes go cross-eyed when you're looking at... So if the you know, gray in one light is not gray and another light and so in any case I did a good job of setting it up and they were very eager players you know we'd wake up in the morning and they'd already be at it my my twin granddaughters Evelyn and Isabella and I was very impressed and I have to say a little bit um, chastened maybe a little bit embarrassed so I secretly, when they weren't there, would try to find a piece. <laughs> and it, I wasn't very good at it, And it, but I found a couple. Somewhere in the middle, by the way, they said, hey, we, oh man, we'd like to, grandma, grandpa, we'd like to, um, to have this framed. Right. And we'd learned that this is something you can do. You can frame a jigsaw puzzle, which gives it a little more purpose, if that matters. <laughs> As we got to the end, they were frustrated at not being able to find certain pieces. And it turns out that the puzzle was missing ten pieces.
0: Hmm.
1: Ten. Ten entire pieces. I was kind of not happy about this. Mm
0: -hmm. Where was quality control then? Exactly.
1: Exactly. I had recently seen a joke sign... One of those internet memes, you had one job, and this is what I thought. You know, you had one job. You just needed to make sure there were a thousand pieces. Of course, I'm, you know, if you think about it a little bit, I'm always compassionate about anybody who has to do any kind of a job. I don't think I'd want to, well, I've already spoken on my relationship with puzzles, and I don't think I'd <laughs> want to work in a in a puzzle factory, which I believe is also a term for an awful place to work, the, mm. the puzzle Factory, or the Puzzle Palace. Any case, I called the place up, and they very matter-of-factly told me, "Oh, there's a form you fill out." I thought, "My God, this happens often enough that there's a form you fill out." I mean, this would you must be driving people in nursing homes crazy. You you know, do it because they love to do puzzles there, and they're thinking, "Oh my God, I've lost my mind. Where are the pieces?" So. They said they'd send us an entirely new puzzle, but if we'd hoped that the we could keep the existing puzzle intact and put in the pieces, they said, well, the pieces won't necessarily fit. There can be slight differences. Oh gosh! And it was running out of our time, and we were not going to be in in Toronto anymore, uh, where my daughter's granddaughters live, and. Um, I thought, oh, well, I'll run out and buy another of the same puzzle. And I, thought I had to look on, oh, that was crazy. <laughs> Finally, we gave up, dismantled the puzzle, and had the new puzzle pieces sent to my home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and chapter two follows soon.
0: <laughs> no granddaughters at your house to do the puzzle.
1: No granddaughters. Only three no, boys. Only me and my wife. Yep. So... I couldn't leave Judy to tackle this whole thing herself, having worked with the girls already painstakingly to create the puzzle the first time around. So I dutifully was helping out. And then I got sucked in. Mm. I got sucked into puzzle world. It happens. And I felt like, I just need to find these few pieces. And so I was staying up late at night looking for pieces and feeling an incredible sense of elation when I found something. Also kind of marveling at how difficult it was. It started to eat up weekends. (laughs) And... Frankly, some mornings when I should have been working, I got into work later than I should have. I think I remember some of those mornings. Yeah. I was mean, just like, well, I'll just in my mind, I'll just do this one, and then I would look up, you know, and an hour had passed and <laughs> oh my God. So, as the puzzle started to fill up and there were fewer pieces, I became convinced that there must be pieces missing.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And at one point there was one piece I was looking for, and there were about two hundred pieces left. And it was the part of this animal's eye <laughs> with you know, three different colors in it. And it was a particular shape. It was about eleven thirty at night. And I decided I'm going to handle every single piece. To, uh, systematically, till I find this piece.
0: Well, you really got it bad.
1: Oh yeah, it was t- <laughs> it's bad. It it said it taught me something about like about how obsessive it, <laughs> one it, can be. One can be, and <laughs> I didn't think I could be that obsessive. I handled every single piece, didn't find the piece, uh-huh. and declared to Judy the next morning, because she was already well asleep. Uh, Look, I looked for that piece in that guy's eye and it's not there. We're going to have to accept the fact that this company screwed up again and uh, the piece is simply not there. Right. And I was also kind of mad. And we started composing letters and vowing that we would never buy a puzzle from... And here I'm already thinking about buying puzzles, which is (laughs) absurd. Never going to buy a puzzle from that company again. Then... We kept finding more and more pieces, and you know, finally we have about 15 pieces left or something. And damn if that piece doesn't show up.
0: Mm. You had handled every single piece? I'd handled
1: every single piece.
0: You knew what you were looking for.
1: I thought I knew what I was looking for. Uh-huh. And I had realized already before that piece that something was going on, in that, when I would look at a piece, I'd form and laid in my mind what it was supposed to look like. Uh-huh. And then I would go right. look for it. And the image in my mind was really faulty. You know, it was really, really faulty. And my patience and attention and willingness to suspend my judgment and... This sounds woo-woo, but let the pieces talk to me or let me actually see the pieces. It was it, it wasn't as pow- it wasn't as good as I thought. I was relying on finding out in the world the picture that I'd formed in my head. And that's when the light bulb went off again. <laughs> oh my God, I do this all the time i have an image of how somebody should be i have an image of how a situation should be i classify somebody as good bad part of my tribe not part of my tribe or and you know i i'm fitting people into boxes Mm. and i'm not you know not seeing the world clearly not the first time i've had that insight but When you have it about something silly and simple, like how you're putting together a puzzle piece, you know, it enabled me to see how persistent it is at the level of perception. Uh Uh-huh. Not just ideas. Right. But, you know, the ideas I might have about people, you know, or things or the world. You know, I think of myself as open-minded and very progressive in terms of my ideas, but... What happens at the level of perception is so ingrained. That's what the puzzle was teaching me.
0: You really got lucky in some ways. I mean, a jigsaw puzzle is like a perfect metaphor. A columnist's dream, perhaps.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a writer, you know, you... I don't know, you could say you... I don't know if you say you look for those moments, but when you stumble into them, you just feel, oh, this is... This is something I want to expand upon because you, then you can explore it through writing and the conversation that comes out of it. Totally.
0: And for you, you were able to sort of liken your ideas about what that so-called missing piece must look like uh, to our own you know, preconceived constructs around difference, I don't know, race and gender expression, economics, social standing maybe. Why do you think those preconceived constructs are so powerful, act on us so powerfully?
1: I think it, um, it has to do with something very um, fundamental in how our cognition works. I had read some time ago that about top-down processing versus bottom-up processing in terms of perception. So top-down processing has to do with uh, signals coming from within our brain right. that uh, tell us what to see, so to speak. So you um, come up with a conception of what a chair is. You know, the ideal form yeah. of a chair. So that when you see this thing out in the world, you can call it a chair. Right. And when you have an artist who you know does something to confound that kind of messes with you right? right so that's that's an example of where the bottom up processing is messing with the top down processing that so we have a lot of ingrained categories that are much juicier than chair or table right uh like, mine and theirs. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> us and them, even. Us and them. <laughs> um, and what you may have learned from people you grew up with or an inherited family bias, even if that bias loosened up over the course of your lifetime, uh-huh. Um it could still be kicking around in there because it's at such a a fundamental level of perception. I notice that, you know, when you look at somebody on the street,
0: yeah.
1: a, a street person, homeless person, uh, it's a very common bias from my era that that somehow they're utterly responsible for their own fate, that there's, there's some kind of laziness there, um, you know, that they're a nuisance. Right. You know, and that's, that's some sort of very deep processing. And the fact that they may be um, afflicted with uh, schizophrenia, or any number of hundreds of mental or physical conditions or life circumstances, that immediate biased processing from the top down is not informed mm. by those kind of subtleties. Right. And it comes real quick.
0: Right. Before you can even notice
1: it. Before you even notice it. Yeah, yeah. And you may not even be conscious that it's there in how you hold your body or the expression ah. that, that might come over your face. And people in those situations are used to perceiving that. Right. They can see that, that bias against them that emerges there. Because they're being met
0: with it. They're being met with it all the time. Right. You note that it's the same mechanism as imagination. It allows us to look at clouds, for instance, and see animals. Um, but you also ask, when we look at other people, are we taking the time to really see them? It's a good question. But doing that
1: also requires imagination, well, it I doesn't it? that I think that the... You know, looking at a cloud and seeing an animal, you know, that, that aspect of imagination, I don't think of that as quite the top-down processing part, but the, um, that has to do more with the puzzle-making part right. where we try to piece together a reality. Yeah. And so we take a few bits of information and we piece together a reality. Right. I mean let's say somebody um is a little short with, with you, you know, and um so um you, you have one datum that they they answered your question a little curtly. Right. And so using that one datum you are you've labeled them completely. Right. Right. Yeah. And you don't know what's going on behind that circumstance. Um, you know, that, that uh, you don't know what uh, difficulty they may just have gone through or how much of a, you know, what's, what's causing this mood to pass through them. I mean, but but um, you very quickly seize on it and decide
0: that person is... That
1: person is such and such. You know, they're in, you know, you choose your nasty word. And, you know, if you think of, let's say you go to a, a party and you're navigating and trying to figure out who to talk to, we're using this kind of thing all the time where we use little teeny bits of data uh-huh. to establish something and go toward what we're used to. Right. So... Um, So the same thing that allows us to look at the world and piece it together in unique and creative and interesting ways like artists do, or like we do when we're artful, we can also piece it together in very narrow ways and very constricting ways, in ways that have an excess of fear and self-preservation. Mm-hmm. rather than exploration and play.
0: Right. Why is that so hard, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> well, why are we so fear-based?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, that's same old story, eh? I mean, when, when you figured that out, Steph, you let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe episode 10 of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that I'm having less, as the years go by, I'm having less luck with the why part of that question and a bit more luck with the fact of the matter ah. that yeah i do a lot of stuff out of fear and self-preservation that's not the most accurate or the most skillful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anything i can do about that <laughs> right yeah but it is persistent i mean that be you know th- that was the lesson again, from the puzzle, mm. that the persistence at the at 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 the simplest possible level of the first thought emerging from your mind is one that's clinging to a solidity and a certainty that isn't there. Uh-huh. I was convinced that the piece that fit in that spot was not there.
0: Right. Even though you physically had I your hands in and your eyes, eyes on I each piece. I held it in my hand. Yeah.
1: And I looked at it. I scrutinized it. and It wasn't there. I scrutinized it, and I didn't see it. So I think, huh. who am I looking at and not seeing? So can I
0: harness my imagination to not just see animals in clouds, but also to see... The best in people, instead of the worst, or seeing the best and worst in people, not even the goal.
1: Well, I think a good goal is to see the best in people. I mean, to to look for that is a what you might call a positive bias. Right. You know, that's infecting things with a positive bias. I'm 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 going to counteract my negative tendencies by by looking for the best in people. That is a you know that's a strategy. But even before that, you used the word harnessing. I would say you can start with interrupting the momentum of the reaching of conclusions.
0: Interrupting you, the reaching of conclusions. Yeah, how
1: fast we reach a conclusion, you know, and kind of having, you can actually watch it taking place. Yeah. This is where the non judgmental part. Of meditation comes in because these things happen so quick yeah so let's say I see this homeless person I have a negative thought about them if I'm if I have the benefit of noticing that negative thought and the first thing I spend my time doing is beating up on myself for doing it right
0: why am I such a jerk
1: yeah that actually doesn't do much for the next interaction you know, it just gets you in this little fight with yourself. Okay. If you can let it be there a bit, ride it, and then start to see more, uh-huh. if that becomes more habitual, then I think over time, it lessens.
0: Okay.
1: it's it's um, That's, I think, the benefit of awareness. Because it's... Um, you know, it's like you, you look at um, sports is an interesting analogy that people are trying to improve. It could be sports, it could be, could be music, any kind of skill. You notice when you're practicing. Let's say you're practicing the violin mm-hmm. or shooting a, a three point shot in basketball. The percentage of times you get it right could be quite low. Mm-hmm. And if you're just beating yourself up every time, that's not going to work. Right. You have to ha- be patiently letting yourself go through those not as effective of uh, ways of doing something until over time it gets better. And I think we can actually work with our perception like that.
0: Huh.
1: It's not something we're used to thinking about, but. When in mindfulness, when we sit and practice some mindfulness, we give ourselves the time, okay, we have no job to do, Right. we're just gonna be with our mind, we're just being... and notice, you know, pay attention to the breath. So we're sitting there, and thoughts come up, we notice them, we come back to the breath, but when we notice them, we're noticing the whole thought. We're seeing it for what it is. Right. So, we're taking the time to really perceive how we're actually seeing the world. Okay. So, over time, that develops what they call meta-awareness. You're actually aware of how a thought is forming. So, when we go out in the world, that can become uh, a um, byproduct so we notice how we're actually f- forming our picture of things, while still being able to get things done. You know, it's not like we have to stop dead in our tracks. Right. But
0: to notice our thoughts. Yeah, or, you yeah, know.
1: They're, they're, you know, we notice them, and um, but I do think it means a li- being a little slower uh-huh. in many cases. I mean, not when you need to be fast at something. If a bear but, is chasing you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's like slow food. Huh. It's just like slow being. You know, it's like just take the slow food thing and make it about being all together. Slow being. Slow that's being. That's a good
0: thing. Well, and I was thinking when you were talking about violin practice, it's like, it's, it's human practice. Yeah. It's human practice.
1: You're practicing with the human instrument. Yeah. The main instrument you've got, the one that has an effect on the world. It's awfully unwieldy sometimes. It sure is. Hard to it's play. It's a lot harder to play than a violin. <laughs> and a violin must be pretty damn hard. I've never tried, but... <laughs> of this is about an
0: awareness of our biases in particular and how much of it is simply that increased awareness is is generally a benefit
1: well I think it's both I mean increased awareness is generally a benefit because it helps us see patterns of mind and behavior that can lead to more pain for ourselves and for other people so generally, awareness is good. I think awareness of bias in particular is interesting because bias is, and we haven't really talked about this today, but bias is a necessary function of the mind. You know, you, you need to, you know, we use biases. You know, I have a bias toward the fact that if I uh, sit down... As, as, as I go into this chair, that it's going to hold me up. Right. Biases are shortcuts.
0: Okay. They kind of fill in the, the gaps for us. Yeah. For better and for worse. Yeah,
1: for better and for worse. Uh huh. And, and, and being more aware of that helps us to work on the for worse part.
0: Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As we do our human practice.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, I, and as I said later on, I carried the analogy of the puzzle. Beyond just the perception of the pieces, but the fact that we're puzzling a world together. Yeah, right. You know, you end up having a worldview. It's like right now, many people, because, you know, they've been economically disadvantaged or for whatever reason, have, you know, formed the notion that foreigners are taking jobs away. Right. So that's a puzzling together of the world. Right. You know, this is... You take some pieces and you form them into a picture.
0: Right. Whether uh, they actually fit or...
1: Whether they actually fit or not. And we... We we all do that. And, you know, you listen to the news. You read the news. You see the news on television. You form a picture. Right. Uh, and... That is a necessary part of living and navigating the world. But it's really helpful to have an understanding, as one of my meditation teachers taught me, that that world is crumbly. Crumbly. (laughs) You know, it's not as solid as you think it is.
0: Right.
1: You know, and... Don't beat yourself up for forming these kind of puzzles in your mind. You're going to do that. It's necessary. You know, I have a picture in my mind right now of the city I live in, Halifax. You and I can both picture it and where we are right now in relation to the public gardens.
0: Right. I mean, that picture is what's going to help me get home after this Exactly.
1: Shack. So you're going to do that. You're going to form pictures. But just like with the biases, be careful you know, what are those? And you know, that's one of the reasons that I was really struck. I went, I was recently traveling and I went to a a show of the artist Joan Miro, Mm. who I didn't spend much time looking at, but Miro has, his pictures are, you know, bizarre collections of forms and, um, you know, reorganizing the world in, in talking about his work, he talked a lot about the the inner perception that that you form your idea of the world inside, mm-hmm. like we've been talking about right. but one of the great things about art is that it can confound um, the picture that we've created, you know it can jumble it up yeah. And, uh, you know, that's so freeing. And um, so, you know, humor yeah. does that, too.
0: Right. Yeah, it turns things on their on their side, on their end a bit, so you can yeah, see something ex- different in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do that when I'm stuck with writing. I try to literally change my physical perspective. So I stand on a chair, or I lie on the floor, or I... To try to immerse myself in some other offbeat way that lets me see what I wasn't able to see before
1: yeah well you know there's a I mean writing you talk about being blocked or stuck <laughs> or yeah and it's it's in a way just that that we're stuck in one way of seeing things and um, you know it can persist
0: yeah if you um bought yourself
1: any more puzzles funny you should ask <laughs> so when i was at the museum of modern art well now i'm, I'm drowning in puzzles because <laughs> my wife my wife assumed that because of my obsession with this puzzle yeah that i was now into puzzles mm-hmm. and she mentioned this to my daughter and my daughter said, oh, well, you should buy dad a puzzle. So now she bought me a puzzle. And then I was in the gift shop at the Museum of Modern Art looking for some postcards of Miro paintings that I liked. And I saw a puzzle for sale there of a, something that had been a New Yorker cover called New Yorkistan. Yes. And it was done by my friend, Myra Coleman, who was a longtime backpage back-page artist for Mindful. Yeah. And her boyfriend, Rick Myrowitz. And here was a puzzle of New Yorkistan, a thousand-piece puzzle. Da da da. And I just thought, I have to buy this. <laughs> so now I will be putting together New Yorkistan, um... Which is a uh, completely hilarious um, representation, in fact, of the mental map of New York, and um, <laughs> I yet think this another conversation
0: just went so meta. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Huh? Comes
1: back full circle to to something that Myra is very good at as an artist is b- jumbling up your uh, perception of the world and in a very delightful way mm. um, and I've really appreciated that about artists I know I have the good fortune to know a lot and they've really uh, taught me a lot about perception I mean even working with art directors and understanding that you know how primitive when I would look at colors mm. How primitive my map of colors was. Right. Maybe that's why I had so much trouble with the puzzle. Maybe my color perception is needs training. Maybe I was seeing like five different colors when I needed to be seeing forty or fifty. So, anyway, we digress. Well, and, I was going to
0: say if, that feels like a column for next month. <laughs> Barry, thanks for this.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, This has been fun. I hope enjoyable, and goodbye to the squeaky chair.
0: (laughs) We'll reconnect with the squeaky chair next time, for sure. This has been Point of View with Editor-in-Chief Barry Boyce. This podcast is a production of mindful.org. If you'd like to talk to us about what you heard on the podcast, or if you have a question for Barry, you can drop us a line at mindful at mindful.org. And if you liked what you heard today, consider sharing us with a friend. If the spirit moves you, maybe even leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Stephanie Domet. Till next time, look hard at those puzzles. (laughs)